Welcome to the PEI podcast. My name is Arshia Kullar and I'm the Asia editor at PEI. I'm here today with David Blumenfeld, partner in charge of Hong Kong Real Estate and the chair of the Asia Hospitality Practice of the global law firm Paul Hastings. Also joining us today is Paul Guan, a partner in Paul Hastings Real Estate Practice and he focuses on cross-border transactions. Today this discussion is about how the triple whammy of China's capital controls, CFIUS regulations in the US, and the worsening trade war between the two countries is impacting Chinese institutional investments into US real estate. David and Paul, you both have had a lot of experience advising Chinese institutional investors and their western counterparts on cross-border deals. David, if I can ask uh, you first, What do you think is the situation today? You know, is it better, worse, or the same as it was since last year? Because we are in a different reality today, aren't we? With CFIUS and trade war becoming further roadblocks to Chinese investments. So I agree that we're in a completely different reality. When you ask whether it's better or worse, I think we have to think about from what time period. So last year we had this um, this regulation in China called Notice 11, and Notice 11 restricted capital outflows from China, um, requiring that they undergo um, government approval. And it was relatively groundbreaking because it was the first time that the Chinese government was um, regulating outflows of capital that were outside of China. In other words, Chinese institutions that held U.S. dollars or pounds or Hong Kong dollars. Um, And that was a big change. And so when we talk about whether it's better or worse, well, there's some good in that um, the government has now rolled back some of those Notice 11 requirements so that for, um, for a significant number of investments, if your Chinese institution or Chinese individual has money, quote unquote, outside of China, again, you know, dollars, pounds, Hong Kong dollars, um, they can do that um, without government approval. So that's one way that it is better. But I think that your question goes to the larger geopolitical implications of what's going on in the world now. And when people think about that, they often think about the relations between uh, China and the U.S. And there's no question that you know, um, the low-level trade war that's uh, going on together with the political rhetoric, um, by and large from the U.S. side, um, is having a negative impact on um, on uh, Chinese outbound investment into the U.S. And then you add into that the number of the economic factors, such as, you know, Chinese deleveraging and a variety of economic factors that are going on. And so, while the investment outlook is better than it may have been for Chinese outbound investments several months ago, if we go back a year or two years or two or three years, um, I think that um, the climate is um, significantly less attractive um, for Chinese outbound investment and that that is going to continue for a while. Paul, what does that mean in terms of actual investments um, and the deals? Um, Anecdotally speaking, for instance, you know, how many deals are you working on with Chinese investments? Are you seeing a significant drop in uh, the volume of capital? Well, again, just uh, as they were saying, so really compare with timing, because it's it's definitely less, significantly less than like two years ago, three years ago. But I, I think it's almost the same compared to the same time last year. Because remember, so that capital control already started like two years ago. Not even though the the, the order number eleven came into effect earlier this year, but China got, Chinese government has started the capital control or tightened up capital control two years ago. So I mean, just uh, probably 
have a different like sector with matters, right? So insurance companies, they are, apparently they are investing significantly less than, than in the United States than before. But we are still seeing quite a number of Chinese developers who have money offshore. They are still investing in, in development deals using their banishing money offshore. So, so help me understand. This means with the Order 11 that was uh, eased somewhat in terms of its regulatory framework earlier this year, mm -hmm. does that mean that if I am a Chinese company that's listed in Hong Kong and I have an offshore balance sheet, this means that I can go ahead and buy any real estate asset globally, irrespective of the size and sector? How much have the regulations eased? Well, uh, technically, they can go ahead to buy if their investment size for that single project is less than three hundred million U.S. dollar. They don't need to go to Beijing for approval. So we, yes, we are seeing quite a lot of deals doing below that that size limitation. So, David, does that mean then we're going to see a different kind of Chinese investments going forward in terms of the size of deals because Chinese investors have typically been seen as buying these trophy assets globally, but are we going to see, say, smaller size deals, $300 million or yet less being happening now? It's an, it's an interesting question because, um, you know, when you talk about a quote-unquote $300 million deal, a lot of times that's $300 million in equity. And if you gear it up or put debt on that, um, many times you'll have um, uh, an acquisition price, you know, $600 million or or more. Um, I'll just note that um, that we are working on, Paul is working on a transaction now, which potentially involves um, a Chinese company investing more than $300 million. And so that company uh, will, um, not in all likelihood, but will um, go to the Chinese government and ask for an approval before they actually do that, uh, do that deal. Um, but I think that you're right. I think that once you're talking about investment sizes over $300 million that require a Chinese government approval, just the nature of having to go to the government for an approval is just one more impediment to doing the deal and will make companies slightly less likely to do that. However, if there's an attractive investment out there and if it makes economic and business sense for the large, it's going to be a large Chinese institution because of these numbers, to do the deal, I don't think that th that, that will prevent them from going to the government. But again, it just means that if you have a list of, let's say, the top 10 deals that you'd like to do, um, now that you have to go to the government for approval, you probably cut that list in half and say only five of these deals are worth it for me to talk to the government. Just out of curiosity, how long does these approvals take? Um, does it run into a couple of months, or is it very case-by-case -case basis? Well, it's case-by-case, but typically it's going to take at least two months. How does all of this uh, translate into your work as lawyers when you're advising Western counterparts on deals involving a Chinese partner? Do you recommend them having a longer period to close a deal, given the fact that capital controls and CFIUS, which we'll talk about later, um, so, sort of prolongs the time taken between signing a deal and closing it. So when you say that we're representing the Westerner in this transaction, you're assuming that the Westerner is the seller. And no matter who the seller is, when you're entering into a transaction, there are a couple of really important things. One is that your buyer has the financial wherewithal to close the deal, and then the other is that they have the, um, the capacity to do that. And so as a seller, you want to understand what the risks are that the deal will not close. And so introducing any additional factors, including government approvals, um, just introduces another risk factor. And, especially, and it's the type of risk factor, of course, that no longer 
relies upon your buyer, but upon some third-party governmental institution that's going to approve it. So when we represent our clients, in this case, who are sellers, we'd have a frank discussion with them about the potential conditions and contingencies in the transaction, the risk of the deal not closing, and whether there are ways to ameliorate the risk. And depending upon what the client wants, there are a score of different things that Paul and I can do in those transactions, either to make the deal more likely to occur from our client's side, or if not, to make sure that our client is in no worse a position by having started to negotiate significantly with this potential buyer who may not be able to but, close. But the risk of capital controls and these approvals taking very long or not coming through in the end mm -hmm. has been a reality for almost two years now, right? Do you think that these risks are now factored in uh, investment decision-making and during the bidding process to decide which partner gets the ultimate uh, asset? Oh, I think it is, because either from the buyer side or from the seller side, when the seller is, is putting a asset on the market, for, for, for example, for bidding, right, for bidding from different potential buyers, they would take that into consideration. If a bid comes from a Chinese company, they would typically ask as a threshold question that do you need to get that approval? Do you, first of all, as David was saying, do you have the money ready? Second of all, do you have the capacity or do you have the ability to get approval ready in a, on a timely basis? And then if I can just add that many times Paul and I were representing a seller in a transaction and they're going through a bidding process because the asset may be attractive and they're looking at several different buyers. Whether the buyers are Chinese or not, they are going to look and see how likely the buyer is to be able to close. And many times you will see that a seller does not always select the highest bidder because they're factoring in the risk of their ability to close. And if there is a gold star bidder with a slightly lower price, but the seller is comfortable and, uh, and confident that that buyer is going to close, they may select them. Of course, a lot of these considerations would probably be similar with other cross-border investors as well. But, but since we're focusing more on Chinese investors in our conversation today, um, does that also include where the money is? Like, you know, Paul and David, you were talking about Order 11 and the fact that if you've already got your capital outside of China, you don't have to go to the NDRC and the other agencies for an approval to get your foreign currency um, out of China. Does it make it easier if I've got a company in Hong Kong and I then can show that I have the money to pay oh, yeah, for the asset? Of course. That, that's one of those, as I say, just special questions that we would ask or would recommend our client to ask. If they have offshore money ready, more likely that the, the, the buyer or the jury partner will not need the approval, so it's just easier for them to make a decision to go ahead or proceed with a conversation with that potential buyer or jury partner. But if the, the buyer is telling that them that the money is actually from sitting in China and they need that approval, in this environment, I'm just not sure that the seller is, is going to go ahead with that seller, with that, sorry, with that buyer. Does it make it harder if it's a joint venture partnership? I mean, right now I'm guessing we're talking about sale and purchase agreements where an asset is changing hands. But, um, you know, Paul Hastings had the press briefing last week and one of your colleagues mentioned how if it's, say, a joint venture partnership involving a Chinese partner and, say, a U.S. manager, for instance, how difficult or easy is the process then, given this environment? It's a great question because although it, it doesn't necessarily follow, what is typical is that in a joint venture, the partner 
parties, the partners may have to capitalize that joint venture over time. So now what you're talking about is instead of one payment, like in a purchase and sale agreement, a schedule or an expectation on both partners' um, parts that the parties, the partners are going to come to the table and fund over time. And now as a Western uh, joint venture partner, you have to ask yourself, okay, can my Chinese joint venture partner bring the money out the first time, kind of like a purchase and sale, but now I need to be comfortable that in six months or a year or two years, they can do that. And so that adds a, another level of complexity and, and uncertainty. Um, to date, in the transactions that we've worked on, we have um, been able to have enough comfort that that can get done. But nevertheless, if you're considering two different potential joint venture partners and one does not need to go through capital control procedures to get their money out, it, it's just inherent in who they are that one should be favored over the other. There's, there's, one another, uh, there's another thing that I found interesting was that back in 2016, when the capital controls first started being introduced, the original rationale was to stabilize the yuan, make sure that the foreign exchange reserves are up to a certain level, and uh, limit capital outflows to some extent. Where we are today, a lot of other factors have been added in, right? Uh, the government wants to make sure that the fiscal health of uh, the country is in place, the financial stability of some of the conglomerates is in place, um, they're not using excessive leverage to fund some of these purchases, for instance. And on top of that, we have political and strategic considerations, as David said. Do you agree that a lot of more factors as to why capital controls continue to exist today um, have been added into the picture now? Well, I agree. Just it's, it's more than just capital control saying so the ongoing uh, so-called trade, trade war is having impact about the Chinese government's attitude towards the outbound investment, in particular to the United States. And, and I just wanted to add, the thing is, this is an incredibly complex question. There's no one right answer. And so as China imposes capital controls and keeps more money inside the country, that naturally leads to inflated internal asset prices because the money that would otherwise flow out is invested into China, on the one hand. On the other hand, China is undergoing somewhat of a deleveraging process, which takes money out of the, out of the system. And so, you know, these are the questions that economists sit around and write very long equations for because there are so many factors and they never get all of them. Um, but it's very, very hard, I think, for any sophisticated person, even the government, to be able to use the levers of managing the economy correctly because, again, because it just, um, because it just is so complex. But how does that factor in when you include strategic reasons? For instance, um, if an investment is disguised as a Belt and Road Initiative, are the chances of these investments getting improved higher? Or, you know, we've PRE has reported on some examples of deals where a Chinese investor has been able to buy healthcare assets or data centers or anything involving R&D, which then they could go back into China and implement in their own country. So in that way, you know, these cross-border deals benefit um, their home country as well. Is there a blanket ban right now or... Would you advise clients on picking certain sectors, most certainly the Belt and Road-related industries? Well, first of all, the Belt and Road has really has nothing to do with, with the United States. But just on the, on, the, on the sector side, I agree. Just, it's just 
getting more difficult for the Chinese government to approve investment, for example, to a, to a hotel deal or high-end condo deal. But it's just easier to, for them to approve in healthcare data center, not because not because there's a strategic value behind that asset, just because it really depends who the buyer is, right? If the buyer is, is an insurance company, it just makes sense for them to buy a senior housing portfolio in the United States or healthcare in the United States. If the company itself is a is a tech company, it just makes sense for them to buy a data center asset in the United States. But just the previous a lot of deals we're doing from the Chinese government's perspective is doing in a in a speculative way, right? You are just uh, you you probably just doing do nothing in in China, but you're buying a trophy office building in the United States. It's just a speculative investment rather than doing what the company is supposed to do. So until now, we've only been discussing capital controls. But on top of that, now we have the CFIUS issue as well. Um, in August, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act of 2018, also known as FIRMA, was passed, which effectively expands the scope of deals that falls under its purview. Essentially, these deals are ones that could have a national security concern, right? But, um, you know, David, are you seeing real estate deals or M&A acquisitions also being required to undertake a CFIUS review now? So several things about CFIUS, and for people who don't know, that's the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, and it's a review process whereby um, transactions that may have a national security um, concern or implication get reviewed by, um, by the U.S. federal government. Um, so the first thing I'd like to say is that this new rule does not apply to real estate unless there is a real estate aspect. I mean, it's, it's more geared towards technology, but of course everything blends together. Um, but what it does is it just evinces the continued and growing concern of the U.S. federal government um, that transactions that may have a national security implication get reviewed. And so it absolutely um, involves the real estate transactions that we do. And the examples that we talk about were, you know, several years ago, if you were buying a logistics center in the middle of the United States, you would probably, as a knee-jerk reaction, say, oh, there's no national security implication. But now you're going to go two or three or four steps further. You're going to say, is that logistics center close to an airport, a military base, or or some other um, physical asset th that may have national security implications? Um, are they transshipping from there um, items that might have um, security implications? I mean, there, there are so many of them. We understand that you, know, you could buy a hotel these days, and again, if the hotel were close to the United Nations, um, and if a lot of diplomats stayed in that hotel, then in and of itself, that raises a national security concern. So in the type of transactions that Paul and I do, which are generally large institutional transactions, we almost always at least initiate a CFIUS discussion with the client. And for, um, for a significant number of them, we will do a CFIUS filing, again, which allows the federal government to review the transaction that we're doing and then to tell us whether or not um, there are security concerns and whether or not um, either the transaction should not go forward, which has never happened to us, or whether um, they want us to take certain steps to ameliorate the potential of, uh, of those concerns. But again, in this case, it just prolongs the time taken to close the deal, right? Here's what I want to know from you. How arbitrary are these approvals with either CFIUS or capital controls? What I'm trying to ask is that 
for instance, is it harder to get an approval if it involves a Chinese SOE investing in real estate or other sensitive sectors outside of China? Is it easier if it's a non-US acquisition? Um, do we have to judge the merits of each case on a case-by-case -case basis, or are these blanket approvals that every investor looking to invest outside China real estate need to deal with, or is it arbitrary? So when you say approvals, right, there's the CFIUS approval, Correct. which is the U.S. approval, and yeah. then there's the Chinese government outbound approval. Yeah. If we're talking about the CFIUS approval, you know, I, I don't know that we have any specific evidence, but certainly in today's political climate, um, the, you know, people certainly have the feeling that security concerns of the U.S. are more geared towards um, towards Chinese investment, almost almost like they were towards the Japanese 30 years ago um, in in the U.S. when there was a concern about uh, Japan investing too heavily um, in the U.S. That's the first thing, and then the second thing is again in our transactions, um, I can't remember a transaction that did not go forward, real estate transaction for for CFIUS reasons. Um, but nevertheless, as you pointed out, it adds a level of uncertainty and an extra timing element um, into the deal. And, you know, uh, there's a concern both on the Chinese side and on the U.S. side as to how that affects the ability to get a deal closed. Paul, your thoughts? No, first of all, because I agree, it's because that process is uncertain, either for, for CFIUS and as well as for, for, for the NDRC approval in China. Just the process per se is, is uncertain. So it just as additional risk to the, to the transactions, but in terms of from what I have seen like in the, in the past one year, right, just for the Chinese government's approval of outbound investment, U.S. investment is putting in a disadvantaged position just because the Chinese government's focus is on a road, belt road initiative, right, so and the U.S. is not part of that. And, uh, and what is happening this year is the trade war is going to be is, is, is ongoing, so it's just getting, getting it more difficult for, for the Chinese government to approve a U.S. investment. And Paul makes, a, Paul makes a great point, which is that, you know, a lot of this is focused on China and the U.S. because, you know, they're the, two, they're the world's two biggest economies. Um, but uh, what we have personally seen is that with these ongoing tensions, um, there's Chinese money flowing out, not just because of Belt and Road, but for other reasons to, let's say, to Southeast Asia. Um, or to Europe. Now, not that some of that investment wouldn't have happened anyway, but I think that there's um, additional impetus to do those type of deals just because there's a, those deals may be considered easier um, and also maybe the places that they're investing, whether true or not, at least are perceived to be more friendly. So, so a change in track, basically, of capital where it's headed right now, given right. all these considerations. Right. But, but again, what I always say to people is, remember, even when that happens, when you have China and the U.S., the world's two biggest economies, there's only so much money the Chinese can invest in Southeast Asia, just like there's only so much money that the U.S., if they want to invest in Asian economies, can invest outside of China. But again, just to follow up on that, what I want to know from you is, are these kind of regulatory risks and geopolitical risks being factored into the pricing of assets in the U.S. right now? Um, the Chinese investors have typically, like I mentioned, known to be bidding some of the highest prices for TOFI assets. In, in, in the environment that we are today, are, are these risks actually reflecting in the asking price of assets? Or is there enough liquidity in the market to lap up the assets irrespective of whether or not the Chinese um, are in the bidding process? Wow, another another complex question. So, I, I don't know if 
the if the lack of participation and the risks are being um, are being factored in as a thought out process. But what happened is when people talk about assets trading, they talk about two things. They talk about price and then they talk about velocity. People want to know not only whether buildings are selling, but how quickly are they selling? How many bidders are there? And certainly with the pullback of Chinese investors, and as you pointed out, some Chinese investors had, um, had been um, bidding at the top of the range for a number of these assets, um, I think it has had an impact on, uh, on pricing and on the expectations of, uh, of sellers. But all of that said and done, there still is enough liquidity, at least in the U.S. market, for these assets to continue to trade, but we're trying to prove a negative here, which is what would those prices have been if there was a more active Chinese involvement in the bidding process. That's it. Thanks to both of you for being part of this discussion. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thank Asha. On the next episode, we'll dive into a new program that's creating major buzz among real estate investors. Opportunity Zone can't make a bad deal good but it can take a good deal and make it better. We think that at this point, it makes sense to sit on the sidelines, do research, and not invest in opportunity zones. That's next time.